Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Questions and hopefully answers tonight. Hi, this is Neil Garfield. And this is Thursday, February 9th, 2017. Good afternoon to those in the West, and good evening to those in the East. We were talking last week, and I've been publishing articles about U.S. Bank and the whole trustee business thing. a lot of information piling in from folks across the country, lawyers and even some people in government regarding the U.S. bank quagmire. Um, Some of the analysis I am receiving comes from the uh, U.S. bank website. I want to thank you all for sending me that U.S. Bank information. It corroborates my analysis and adds depth to it as well. Charles Marshall joins me as co-host tonight discussing the legal quagmire created by the courts and perhaps created, as I have repeatedly said, by some bad lawyering out there. Welcome, Charles. Yes, uh, great to be on as always, Neil. So we're going to get to as many questions as possible. I uh, have uh, area code 770-404-309-408-207, all with questions. and we'll get to you in a moment. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. Especially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. For those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you, if our other work and assistance has had value for you, then please 
Make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. God knows with the current administration, consumers are going to need all the help they can get. So with that, uh, Charles, any uh, uh, news on the Western Front that's of interest to everyone before we start the questions? Well, you know, there's some cases pending, including one of mine in the Ninth Circuit, and all these cases relate to this perennial question that's become a very pressing question after Ivanova, and narrowly it boils down to is a a late assignment into a securitized trust, in other words, the date by which all the assignments to the trust, when the trust is being funded, that window, which is typically, you know, a period of days, could be 30, could be 90, but it's a limited period of time. If that particular mortgage goes in late, common sense and most law suggest that that should be void, such an assignment. However, in California, those those cases are now, after some decisions that came down during the summer, following Satterback, which came out just after Ivanova, again, another California appellate case, then Yehudai, which came down in, in the summer, another California appellate case, and then ones following that one, it's not a good climate right now. We're getting a lot of judicial findings slash holdings to the effect that such a late assignment means the borrower would have a merely voidable allegation that might be substantiated and therefore get past demure, get past motion to dismiss. So that's well, a big hump to get over. And, and, the, and the most yeah. demoralizing thing is that the judges are using that narrow period of time, meaning the late assignment issue, to shut down all chain of assignment issues. So they're taking these narrow rulings, which really just relate to late assignments, and saying that if you have a chain of assignment issue that doesn't have anything to do with the securitized trust and the late assignment there too, we're still going to shut you down under the same legal theory. The, the thing that I would comment on that, and then we'll go to the questions, and I'll remind the listeners that if you want to ask a question and be high up on the queue, follow the directions about what number to uh, hit on your uh, on your phone. Um, the, the 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 whole assumption uh, regarding uh, void and voidable is an insane one, frankly. Because in the case of a trust, it's got to be a REMIC trust, a real estate mortgage investment conduit, which falls under federal law, uh, the Internal Revenue Code. And any supposed assignment or activity after the closeout period means that this entity is staying in business and actually... Uh, continuing to uh, buy and sell mortgages or something like that, which would then remove the remix status, 
which would remove the pass-through status, which in turn would cause the beneficiaries to have to declare every penny they received as ordinary income, which would be a horrendous uh, result on them. And that ordinary income would include return of principal. So and just for everybody's... I'm just going to say, just for everybody's edification, when you say beneficiaries in this context, you mean those investors to the trust who invested in the trust precisely to get the tax benefit. And you're absolutely right. These late assignments, on paper, legal and otherwise, should destroy the tax benefit that they that they bargained for, and it was it was a but for reason to do the deal to begin with. Right. I mean, I, 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 even if they were operating properly, which they weren't, but assuming they were operating properly, and the trust was real and it had real assets and all that, if the beneficiaries were to ratify a late assignment, they would be slitting their own throats and causing a horrendous loss. So the whole concept of this being voidable, as though that was a possible thing that investors would choose to do, is absurd, and it would destroy the entity itself. And even though I could talk longer on that, we've got a caller at area code 770 First three digits, three, three, one. What is your question? You'll need to hit star six, I think, to unmute your uh, phone. Well, while you're figuring that out, we will go to the next one which is area code 404, first three digits, 786, uh, 404-786. What is your question? Can you hear me? Yes, I do. Well, finally, after four years, I've been trying to reach you, so this is wonderful. My brother passed away in 2008. The house is in Florida. The house was given to my father. And, you know, through the homestead process. And then my other brother and I purchased it from him with silver from my father, which was transferred through a quick claim deed into the the court records. Then four and a half years later, they tried to foreclose on us. So I've been in court for four and a half years. Now, since there, it's an FHA loan that's in a Ginny May Trust, I found that out. I just wonder when, since we know the debt is paid, it was paid upon his death. There's insurance to pay it, but they won't release any of the documents. And the judges have compelled them three times to produce the documents. They still haven't done it. I just wonder if you ever dealt with anything like this. Yes, actually I have. Uh, I had a case up in the panhandle in which um, 
the person who owned the property passed away. Her insurance paid off the mortgage. Her family didn't know about the insurance or the payoff. Bank of America got the heirs to sign a modification agreement, which they paid on for several years. Bank of America had executed and filed, recorded, a satisfaction of mortgage upon payment. And then they proceeded, based on the modification, which was a modification of nothing because it was all paid off and satisfied, Bank of America decided to foreclose on the heirs because the heirs had stopped paying or whatever the situation was. And they just wouldn't listen when it came to saying, hey, we, we now know you got paid. Not only can you not foreclose, you owe us back the money we paid you for this loan that was already paid. And that blew up into litigation, and there was a wrongful foreclosure aspect to that, as there is in yours. Um, and uh, eventually it was resolved in the homeowner's favor, um, and there was a payment, I think, from Bank of America not only for uh, uh, attorney's fees but for the money that they paid. Um uh, Danielle Joyner actually took uh, control of that case, and uh, m my knowledge of it is secondhand. Uh, Charles, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, I think on on that particular one, you you covered all the angles on that. I mean, it's well, clear. That... Oh, I'm also on an FDCPA case in the Eleventh Circuit Appeals Court right now. Uh, tell us, um, tell us about that. Uh, tell us about that situation. Well, because they're debt collectors, they're service. They're not my creditor. I have no contract with them, so I filed an FDCPA case. They stopped everything in the foreclosure. That went silent, and now I've been fighting that. And it's already. It's had to go. That what they did was, I live in Georgia. I filed it in Georgia, and the they didn't dismiss their complaint. They agreed that I had a valid claim, but they wanted to move venue to Florida because I sued 17 attorneys. They're all in Florida, and they thought it was fair to them because they were violating the law that I should go to Florida to file my consumer complaint. So they transferred it to Florida, and I filed an interlocutory appeal. The 11th Circuit messed that up, filed two numbers. They didn't know which one to do, so they dismissed them both. They gave it to the 11th, um, the federal judge in the Middle District of Florida. He dismissed it with prejudice because of statute of limitations on a letter. This is a motion to dismiss on statute of limitations. And isn't that an um, affirmative defense that can't be used in a motion to dismiss? At least that's what I put in my objection. On top of all the okay. legal accidents. So anyway, it's it's now, and I had to appeal it, it's now in the 11th Circuit waiting for an opinion. And that's mainly on the, on the statute of limitations aspect, right? 
yeah, that's what he he did it on. He did. They didn't even address the fact that they never validated or verified the debt ever. They yeah, didn't even. Some, some questions about. Uh, I mean, the statute of limitations on FDCPA appears to be one year, uh, but I think when it's coupled with uh, an action for concealment uh, and fraud, uh, the action might still be barred, uh, the FDCPA action might still be barred, but the fact that it was a violation of the FDCPA can be used to state one of multiple grounds uh, uh, for why what they did was wrong, even if you can't collect on that particular federal statute. So it uh, uh, sounds like you're in uh, the right venue and uh, uh, I hope you succeed. Thanks for calling in. Thank you, Neil. I did have one, 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 one other angle to that. One is your your analysis just now. That would also apply in California when you would join the uh, the allegations to possibly a business and professions code claim, which is fraud related or even just generic fraud. The other issues that, that is raised there, it sounds like the 11th Circuit, having let that cause of action go forward initially, it sounds like it's a circuit that would treat mortgage debt as, a, as, as an actual consumer debt, whereas, uh, as we know, and we talk about this on the show periodically, the 9th Circuit is mixed, but all too often treats mortgage debt as not consumer debt. And therefore, in California, FDCPA-type claims rarely move forward. They do in front of certain judges, but not otherwise. But, Neil, do you have a take on whether the 11th Circuit is friendly to looking at mortgage debt as a consumer debt as opposed to not a consumer debt? Um, I don't have a direct take on that. But indirectly... It would appear from some of their decisions that uh, they would reject any argument that this was not a collection of a consumer debt under the FDCPA. Um, that's more of that's more of a guess than it is, you know, coming from a point of knowledge. Uh, but uh, certain of their decisions clearly point in that direction, uh, but we, you know, we're constantly surprised by the length that courts will go in order to make the banks win, which, as I've said before, I think may relate more to political and policy things from the executive and legislative branch uh, than the application of law. I think the decision is that if we don't do everything to make sure these banks can foreclose, that our system will collapse. I believe that assumption, that that myth, uh, is pervasive throughout the executive and legislative branch and is now pervasively accepted in the judicial branch. 
And if you look at any of the decisions, even the ones that are favorable to homeowners, there's still that assumption behind the the curtain that this was a legitimate debt incurred by the homeowner to someone, they don't know who, but someone in the chain that is foreclosing on them, and that's just not true. Uh, that debt is owed to somebody else who was the actual source of funds and who actually stands to lose money on this deal, uh, which is the the investor. And don't believe when they say Fannie Mae is the investor or uh, U.S. Bank is the investor or whatever. That's, that's nonsense. Uh, the investors are pension funds and other stable managed funds on Wall Street. So that's uh, uh, I'm certainly not an expert on the 11th Circuit. I probably at this point know more about the 9th Circuit. But uh, decisions that I have read from the 11th indicate that they will uh, clear the path for uh, FDCPA actions. So 770 area code, first three digits 331, 331. Uh, did you figure out how to unmute your phone? Apparently not. So we will move from that to area code 309. First three digits, 681. Do you have a question? Tick-tock, tick-tock. Maybe we need to make these instructions more easy to understand. All right. Area code 408. First three digits, 390. Do you have a question? Hi, Neil. Hello. This is... Hello, are you there? I'm here. Um, yes, uh, I went through the foreclosure process starting in probably 2009, the WAMU loan. Um, so I, I was forced to default. They quit accepting my payment. Uh, I went through the loan modification process like five times. No results from that. I was kind of forced into uh, filing bankruptcy uh, five years ago. Uh, I filed Chapter 13. I went through the five-year plan, paid everything on time. Uh, it was just recently dismissed in December of this past year uh, on, the, on the premise that my loan modification through the bankruptcy was still pending. Um, so I just received a letter yesterday from um, Chase stating that uh, the foreclosure sale is February 23rd. So I was under the impression I would have to, they would have to go through the due process and get the, uh, you know, send a notice of default and, you know, the 21 days, et cetera. So I, my, my plan is, strategy 
is to maybe refile Chapter 13 instead of listing Chase as a uh, secured debt, listed as an unsecured debt, uh, move to an adversary hearing and let them prove standing, try to prove standing on this. What are your thoughts on that? Charles, you want to take that? This is a California call. California, yeah, Northern California. Uh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that, that could happen in there is that you could challenge the proof of claim. I mean, I would I would give cautionary advice, and the extent of caution would depend on which district you're in. So what 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 city is the subject property? San Jose, California. Okay, so you would be out of the uh, northern district, and you know if you're if you're in San Francisco or Oakland, I mean you could potentially use an adversary proceeding, coupled with an opposition to proof of claim, to get enough traction to possibly get Chase to come to the table for some kind of settlement. I think out of the San Jose district, you know, there's a separate bankruptcy court down there. Uh, that's that's going to be a tougher slog. Um, the judges there are pretty u- uniformly in the in the pocket of the uh, the yeah, servicers. Yeah. I'm not saying that they're doing their bidding. I'm saying that their their rulings have an uncanny ability of lining up with. Uh, with the servicers and sales trustees. Uh, who, who is your sales trustee? Um, originally, it was uh, California what was it, Remit Trust, but now I'm just getting the letter straight from Chase, so I'm not even sure who was the trustee on your deed of trust that was foreclosing. Uh, I believe it was, uh, what was it, California Reconveyance? Reconveyance? Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean. That was was five years ago. Yeah. See, I was expecting to get, I was expecting to get letters from them and, and, you know, that whole start the chain of process over again. But I, I just received a letter from Chase saying that they rescheduled the foreclosure uh, sale to February 23rd, which I never even received anything on the initial. So I guess my question is, is since my bankruptcy was completed, dismissed in December, what is their fiduciary duty to move forward to execute the foreclosure sale? Can they just go ahead and, and list the date for sale or do they have to go through you know, the notification process to notify me? You know, the, 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 the attempts to make the phone call, the letters, and all that type of stuff? Well, in order to be bonafide, after the notice of default that you received, let's put it this way, your most recent not- notice of default, do you, do you recall whether it was recorded before or after January 2013? That was before. That was back in 2010, probably. And you haven't had a notice of default since then? No. Well, there's not an absolute legal stricture in California 
against <laughs> bringing a property to sale based on a notice of default that is many years old. However, as a practical matter, I do see uh, in your future and in your present uh, the ability to bring a lawsuit based on I mean, and, you know, this is not legal advice, of course. This is a radio sure. show, so everything I'm saying is is preliminary and provisional, and it's not legal advice. But I could see a scenario with a situation like yours. I'd have to look into it more fully. 30 whereby, seconds. Say that again, Neil? 30 seconds left, 25. Okay, well, if you can provide contact information to someone, we will follow up with you. Because I okay. think you have a case based on what you've told me so far. Yeah, I, I, I was kind of dumped to the whole uh, process for five years, and then I was expecting to get out. And then, you know, the my whole thing was equity. Let, let the property return in value. It has done that to a degree. Okay. But now they've tackled. Well, follow up. Follow up on the blog because I think we're going to run out of time. All right. Yes. Thanks, guys. Uh, You're back. welcome. Thank you very. much. Sorry, we couldn't get to more. Thanks, Charles. Next show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.